Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Well, hello and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. This is Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. This week, Chris, we kind of bounced a couple ideas off of each other. And one idea that I had that I think resonated with you was this idea of contemplative consumption. Yeah. So contemplative consumption, we kind of opened it up into a couple categories and we thought about the food we consume, the resources we consume via our consumeristic culture, and then maybe the media we consume. And the the key question or the contemplative question that this opened up for us is, do the things that you consume reflect the kind of person you are and want to be? By opening up that question, what we hope to do is not come across as preachy or superior in any respect, but to open this question for not only the listener, but for ourselves and start considering all of the many ways that we consume and how that reflects upon where we are and where we want to be in our lives. Yeah. What brought this up for you, Riley? I've been thinking about this topic for a while, but the one that kind of spurred it for me is on Instagram, I I follow this hormone specialist named Lane Kilpatrick. He's based out of Salt Lake, I believe. And he does these Instagram videos where he highlights various products that are commonly consumed in America, primarily. Everything from food dyes to the water we get from our taps, bottled water that we get, various forms of packaging like plastics. And he highlights all the ways in which these are produced for efficiency, but not for health. And so he warns people that there's various products that are estrogenic, for instance, and that men should avoid because they leach estrogenic chemicals into your food. It's something that's been on my mind for a while. And it kind of opened up into a larger discussion when when I started talking this over with you about what are the many ways we consume, not just food, but resources in general, including stuff like media. And so we want to open this up and start talking about this categorically and then hope to wrap it up sort of holistically and, and see if we can just be a lot more contemplative, mindful of this way in which we live. The first inkling I got about what consumption entails that opened my mind to it was a few years back, I was reading Thich Nhat Hanh, and I think it was Living Buddha, Living Christ. I'm not positive if it was that one or or a different book. I've read a few of his, but at one point in the book, it talked about mindfulness and the Buddhist monk tradition of, of extreme mindfulness, taking it to the level of even eating. And I remember him talking about each mastication of a bite being mindful of each mastication. So like chewing, each time he chewed on a piece of food, realizing the source of that food and the nourishment that it was providing and just the mindfulness that was brought to his mind when he eats. He noticed that when he eats, 
in an attitude of mindfulness, one of the things that happens for him among many others is that he becomes much more mindful about his overall impact on his environment. Isn't that interesting? Absolutely. I mean, and and this is the beautiful thing about this is when you open up this line of thought and you start employing it throughout your day, realizing the many ways that we consume, I like to say it has the potential to make you a more ethical person. Ethics is kind of a squishy subject. I understand that, but I feel like it can make you a better person in that sense. I would agree with you, Riley. I wouldn't disagree at all. For me, this topic resonated with me because I realized this isn't something I am thinking about as much as I could be. And I've read some of the same stuff you've read. By the way, Thich Nhat Hanh's books, in some sense, are all alike. And in another sense, you're always trying to remember which one was it I read that in, right? <laughs> yeah, that is a problem. I do like reading his books. And, you know, even if they are the same, as a side note, you know, you can always get something by either rereading the same book or reading another book that's similar. There's nothing wrong with that. So I think, you know, for me, it stood out once when I heard a sheikh, that is, you know, someone teaching in the Islamic tradition, an elder, if you will, in the Islamic tradition, mentioning that his sheikh, his teacher, would not use a single-use cup, that he refused to use a single-use cup. I'd never even heard of such a thing, a single-use cup. I mean, I get it. It's actually obvious what it means. I knew right away. But I'd never heard anybody talk like that or think like that, right? That you would have this issue with using a single-use cup. I mean, I grew up in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and Dixie cups were it, and paper plates and all that. And it's not like we used them all the time at home. But, you know, we did have TV dinners. That was a thing when I was growing up, too. And there's a lot to our culture that is not mindful when it comes to consumption. There's sort of this profit-driven, convenience-driven, and of course, the convenience may or may not be a thing. You know, I mean, they sell you on, it's going to be so much better for you if we do this for you, but nobody's really counting the cost. If they are, they're not telling us that gets in the way of profitability. And if we are, maybe we're not being honest with ourselves. Again, I I don't want to be preachy either, Riley, and I'm not actually doing this, but I want to. I think I was impressed with this teacher and I thought, how do I change my mind about how I think about these things? Another sheikh wouldn't drink from Starbucks at all, even though he would drink coffee. He would go to another coffee shop because of the politics of the company, you know, that kind of commitment. And I thought, man, I don't know if I could do that. But I get it. And I thought, this is a true contemplative, right? Here's someone who's really thinking about their consumption. These two sheikhs were were inspirations to me in that way. But then, you know, I forgot about it until you brought it up. So thanks for bringing it up, Riley. Well, you bring up another aspect that we hadn't really discussed pre-show or another category. And that is how does our consumption influence the political climate or or even the social climate that we're surrounded by? That's something we need to think about as well. But some of these categories, if we're going to speak at least categorically now, and then maybe we can boil it down to individual instances or experiences that we can start to have an impact upon in our individual lives. But some of the categories might be ecological. How does our consumption impact the ecology? How about psychological? How does our consumption impact our mind and our body in ways that maybe we're not even realizing, talking about media primarily. And then you just brought up this, how does consumption impact the social dynamic that we're surrounded by? When you mentioned ecology, it occurs to me because of something I'm working on, there's a difference between ecology and environmentalism. 
you know, for you and me as recovering libertarians, can I call us recovering libertarians? We've thought a lot about the government getting involved in the choices that we have and limiting them, right? Well, here's the thing. If we don't care about ecology, then environmentalists are going to come along and they're going to make policies to force us into change. So it's always the same story, right? If you want to be free, be responsible. The more responsible you are, the more free you are. Yeah, that's that's a great point to make. A lot of these policies that come up that force people into positions they don't want to be forced into are necessitated by the fact that we aren't mindful of our impact at this moment and doing anything about it. And so if you don't want those policies, do something with it in the private sector, and then the necessity for doing something in the public sector is sort of erased. Okay, let's start talking about some of these. Maybe we can dive into the categories here and talk about impact. One of the things that I mentioned to you yesterday when we were kind of discussing this topic back and forth is electric vehicles. The irony of this is electric vehicles were sort of, they've become more popular in response to our impact on the planet due to our consumption of fossil fuels. And so it's almost like a vertical step up, some kind of a hierarchy of energy use, right? It's not a footprint free use of energy by any stretch, right? There is an impact on the environment when we use even more energy efficient modes, okay, of transportation. It's just a different impact. I was surprised when you told me about that. But again, I haven't thought about it. That's all, right? It's not like I can't. That's the thing is turning on the contemplation, right? Let me think about this. So I'm going to back us up to why we came up with automobiles in the first place, which was there was a pollution problem. The streets were full of horse dung. So we come up with the automobile as a solution. Now what? Now we have the problem with the contamination from the automobile. And so now we come up then with the electric car. Well, now what? Yeah. So now you've got electric cars that are run by rechargeable batteries, lithium and other heavy metals and chemicals and and whatever that are used to construct these batteries. Well, they have to be pulled out of the earth. They're a resource as well. All those heavy metals that are used to recharge the batteries. And the more you dive into this, and I, I, you know, this wasn't something that I did on my own, but I've seen pictures of these open mines where they, where they pull out, and I wish I knew the heavy metals by name, but I don't. And they pull these out of these open pit mines. Well, someone's doing that. And it's done primarily in third world countries in Africa or Asia. And you've got the lowest economic tier of society that's working in these mines. So there's a real human impact. Those of a certain political bent love to make a lot of hay about sweatshops in China because we have our iPhones or something like that. But they're the same people that are driving a Prius. And that Prius is sourcing the metals for its rechargeable batteries from the same socioeconomic class of people that are working in these sweatshops in China. And so it's like you said, we just need to become more mindful in general of what the impact is and make the best choice we can. Obviously, there's really no great choices. Sure, we can walk everywhere, but then we're limited in how far we can walk, right? And how far we can go. What are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to sacrifice, you know, your travel hobby? Are you willing to sacrifice the speed to which you get to work each day? Instead of driving to work a half an hour, it's going to take you three hours of walking or two hours or riding a bike or whatever. Like what sacrifices are we willing to make to achieve the lowest impact that we can. And so it's more about optimization maybe. 
Yeah. And I've already talked about the horse. So bringing the horse back is not going to be a solution. Riding a bike might be a good one. You know, when I think about those trade-offs, right? Oh, it's going to take me longer, but I'll be doing something good for the environment. Well, what about me, right? I'm doing something good for myself too. It might help us to be able to do more of this if we think in terms of how to stack things, right? So if I need exercise anyway, why am I driving to the gym and then riding a stationary bike? What if I just ride my bike to work? Oh, well, then you need a shower. Maybe it depends on where you live. Okay, so you work that out. There are ways, right? There are ways. This conversation really is just an invitation to consider the possibilities. And by the way, it's hard to talk about ecology without talking about environmentalism because of the relationship I mentioned. We don't mean to be political in this discussion. It's just, it's almost impossible not to think about environmentalism when you're thinking about ecology. Right. So another example that we talked about is your daily shower. How many people will sit in a hot shower just because it feels good? They'll go 30, 40 minutes sometimes in a hot shower, just steaming themselves and getting all lethargic or whatever, just because it feels good, right? And the amount of water that's used in a shower that takes half an hour, I don't even know. What is it? 70, 80 gallons? It's got to be a ton of water that's used, right? The energy that's used to heat a new batch of water for the next family member that jumps in the shower after you. One way that accomplishes two things or kills two birds with one stone to reduce that would be, hey, let's do cold showers. This is all the rage, right, Chris? I've been enjoying it. I really have. I can't take a hot shower anymore. I can take a warm shower, but no hot showers. So I take a cold shower in the morning. If I have a shower in the evening, it's warm, lukewarm. Yeah. And it's more of like a relaxation tool. So you're not spending a half an hour in there, like re-soaping yourself or whatever. It's just like, I'm going to jump in, get me calm, and then I'll go to bed. Something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess in that shower, I'm a little bit more guilty of using maybe more water than I need to. I mean, it just depends. What are you doing? Is it hygiene or hydrotherapy? And maybe there's a place for hydrotherapy, but are you doing this every day? I don't know. Those cold showers are quick though, aren't they? They are. <laughs> Mine are about two minutes, but it's a wake up, man. It, it's the best thing you can do in the morning. It just energizes you. Your skin feels electric. I've been doing it for I don't know, five years. And I, I'm kind of on and off, but you know, I've been pretty consistent for the last couple of years of a, of a daily cold shower. And I can be in and out of a regular shower like most people in five minutes, but I tend to find if it's too comfortable that you hang out in there and sit under the water. And maybe there's a time for that. If you're feeling really cold or whatever, you need to recharge, but- Well, there's blankets and heaters and clothes and- Yeah. And of course, there are always trade-offs, right? This conversation, it's not intended to be economic, but it is, right? I mean, we have to understand economics, right? Economics isn't about money. It's not even necessarily about resources. It's about choice. Economics is all about choice. And then of course, choice is among resources. So it does relate to resources. Yeah. I mean, you could bring up Mises and human action. Human action is just choice. It's the choices we make. And there are always trade-offs. And that's the thing to realize. Maybe it's worth saying that we're not saying a cold shower is the answer. It's an answer. It's an answer that we found that works for us. The question is, what can you do? What works for you? And then even just to think about it, right? Just, just thinking about it. I wasn't thinking about it. By the way, I didn't think about water conservation when I started taking cold showers. You turned me on to the idea of how good it was going to be for me, and it has been. But you know, now that you mention it, yeah. And by the way, I grew up in a country where, in Venezuela, right, where water comes to a tank at your house, usually on the roof, unless it doesn't. And sometimes it doesn't. 
And so usually you're paying attention to that. And if you know it, the water is not coming in, then you start conserving water even more, right? But even if there is water coming into the tank, we already had a more conservationist mindset. For example, I grew up where you turn on the water to get wet, then you turn it off to soap up, then you turn it back on to rinse off. You don't have the water running the entire time. This uses more soap, by the way. How about that? I've thought about that, right? When you're using the soap and the water's running constantly, there goes all the soap down the drain. Right. You didn't even get to use it. So I, I love this point that you bring up. It's not about preaching to everyone else or, or going to extremes. It's really just about looking at your daily life as it stands right now and saying, how can I move the needle and just be more mindful? And even if you move the needle slightly, it's that network effect almost or the, or the exponential effect of a, a billion people doing it too. And so if we could all become just a little bit more mindful of the many ways in which we impact the environment, then, you know, we can move the needle. Like small and simple things, great things come to pass. Yeah. Yeah. A little Alma for you right there. And you reminded me again of what you said. I want to bring it up again about Thich Nhat Hanh, because it's not just that mindful eating is good, is a good way to eat. It's actually better for you, right? To take your time. We all know this. And sometimes we're just in a hurry and just noticing we're in a hurry and eating more mindfully can actually change our entire lives, right? And you start to think, this, well, why are we talking about this? We got into this contemplative game, you know, because we wanted our lives to be better and we're sharing because we thought it might be worthwhile, you know, sharing. It might help somebody else's life be better. And so now all of a sudden we're thinking about contemplative consumption. This is not something that come up in our conversation. It's not like this episode has been waiting to be recorded for months or years, even though we've been recording for months or years. It's something that recently came up. Well, that's the beauty of the contemplative life. You move from one subject to another, and pretty soon your whole life is contemplative. You're thinking about everything in a contemplative sense. You're more mindful as a person. And that's been part of the journey for us. We're a couple of years now into this podcast, and I can't even count the number of aspects of my life that have changed just by employing this practice of contemplation, of mindfulness. And so I love it. It's a great conversation. Let's, let's continue it on here. We've, we talked a little bit about the ecological impact, the environmental impact. Let's talk about our food consumption. I mentioned this hormone specialist, again, Lane Kilpatrick. One of the things he does is he breaks down the sources of food, the additives to food that large agricultural conglomerates have put in to make the process or the addiction more efficient for them. And, you know, we're talking economics again. There are reasons for them to do this, that some of them may be motivated by very high ideals. For instance, you think about the green revolution in India in the 1960s, using fertilizers for the first time there ended up feeding tens of millions of people that were going starving because they had much more efficient use of their land. So their farming techniques during the green revolution in India saved millions of lives. And yet, see, and that's it, right? The higher that we move up the socioeconomic ladder, the ways in which we approach this stuff needs to change. It needs to be fluid. There are no absolutes in this game. It requires us to be constantly contemplative. Yeah, because now we're in a place where we're not starving. And as a matter of fact, many of us are glutted. Yes. But we're destroying the soil. The less nutrients there are in the soil, the more nutrient deficient our food is, and then we need more of it, even to be satisfied. 
Right. I'm not talking about I'm getting the nutrients. We have no way of measuring that in ourselves, right? When we're eating, we just know how we feel. But how we feel has everything to do not just with how much food we eat, but the quality of the food we eat. Right. The higher quality, the lower quantity is necessary. Yeah, the bioengineering that's taken place in food has primarily been towards the economic goal of earning more money for the, the company that's selling them. And so what are they going to do? It's all about appearance and taste. Those are like the big two. And primarily appearance, because when you go to a grocery store, you're buying on appearance. You, you can't take a bite out of something and say, oh, that's the one I want. Right. You buy on appearance, right? So let's, let's take the example of an apple. Apples have been highly bioengineered. And the most popular apple right now, I believe, is the Honeycrisp. They're also fairly expensive, but man, do they taste good. Have you had a Honeycrisp apple? Sure. Okay. And same thing with Fuji, I believe, is another really popular apple strain. But when you look at the nutritional profile of these, they've decreased markedly over the course of the last 50 years due to the bioengineering. They're bred for appearance and taste. You're going to get a nice outside skin on this apple. It's going to look really appealing. It's going to be free from deformities because they spray the hell out of these things, pardon my French, with pesticides that are going to kill anything that might leave even a minuscule scab on the skin of this apple. And so it's just not good. It's not good for us nutritionally, even though it tastes dang good. What's the next step in that process? Do you, do you quit eating apples or are there other alternatives? Yeah, you know, I don't relate as much to this as a Venezuelan, you know, coming from a place where the fruit and vegetables, the produce, it comes from closer. It's not necessarily this kind of big agriculture, monocultures. Monoculture is really bad for soil too, by the way where you do buy it, you do look at it and you touch it and you can even taste it, by the way. Someone selling fruit and vegetables in other countries will let you taste it sometimes, right? So you need to see what you're getting. But the fruit doesn't look in any way uniform. It's not the same color, size, shape. You get all kinds, right? You know, I know that variety is one of the, not only the spice of life, as my grandmother taught me, but it really does make a difference in your health the more variety you get in your diet. Not eating just the one kind of apple or only apples, but eating other kinds of apples or other than apples, et cetera. No, that's a great point. You, you bring up another point. In Venezuela, obviously, there's going to be a whole host of foods that are available locally due to the climate, due to the soil, whatever, that we wouldn't have, say, in Utah or even in California, even though there might be more similarity there. Where I live in Utah, it's a mountain desert, but during the winters, they're harsh winters. We don't harvest anything during the winter here that wouldn't be hydroponically grown or indoor grown, right? Everything during the winter in terms of fruits and vegetables would be imported into the state from other states or from other countries. Now, that's not 100% bad, right? That's not a terrible thing. It gives us, for instance, better health because we have more variety in our gut, the gut biome. That's all important, right? But th there's something to this idea, and, and it was touched on in the Word of Wisdom when Joseph Smith mentioned eating fruit in the season thereof. We might even consider doing an episode on that and bringing somebody on, you know, because it really does matter when you eat things in, in ways that we've lost track of because of these modern conveniences. We have our food trucked in. By the way, if your food was trucked in, not only is it older or it was picked when it was green and not ripe, then there's the fuel and that, all of that, right, comes into play. And of course, if you can afford it in some sense, who cares, right? Maybe that's how we think. And, and maybe we should 
think in other ways. Maybe we should care. Maybe we should think more about other things than just how much something costs or how it looks or how it tastes. It's hard for people who are eating highly processed foods, a lot of junk foods, a lot of, you know, eating out to think about eating healthy sometimes because they don't like the taste of it. It hasn't been bioengineered. There are no chemists behind it to make sure it tastes in a certain way. What do we love? Fat and salt together, especially this is what makes McDonald's French fries so good, right? Everybody loves McDonald's French fries until you don't. But for those who do, they have the perfect combination of, by the way, I forgot sugar, fat, salt, and sugar. The other thing that we completely just flew by when I asked the question of there being another way is food preservation. Yeah. And what we used to do is in the season thereof, we would harvest and preserve. So you could still eat it. Yeah. You could still have a winter, you know, apple if you wanted, but it was going to be bottled, you know? And by the way, that changes something because this is where fermented foods come from too, right? Sure. Fermenting foods is a way of preserving them and you get so many benefits from eating fermented foods. Does it help with the winter blues? I don't know. We'll have to ask a nutritionist. Okay. So, you know, we, we've brought up a couple points there. Again, just contemplative points. This is, and it, it, it can come across as preachy. We're trying hard not to do that. I don't bottle. My wife's grandmas, they both bottled. My wife's mom bottled. My mom bottled foods. It was common just a generation ago. But again, you mentioned the term lost art. It's become lost to us a bit. Yeah. Part of this conversation really does touch on that. There are so many ways in which I've noted over the years and with my travels and studies, there's wisdom, there's lost wisdom. The ancients, they knew more than we do in some senses, right? We think we're so modern, we're so sophisticated, yet I keep finding here and there and everywhere when it comes to this topic that they knew something we don't know. And we do well to look back to that knowledge, to look for that lost wisdom. Well, I think there's costs and benefits to living in the modern age. One of the costs of efficiency, efficiency is not all bad, Efficiency can be great, but one of the costs of efficiency is that it has taken priority over other methods. If something's not efficient, we toss it out. Bottling is not super efficient time-wise, even though it preserves food. We buy food so cheaply now, and it's cheap food, by the way, so it's like a double entendre almost. Wait, you mean if the food is cheap, it's cheap? Exactly. Yeah, you get what you pay for. We get it so cheaply and we've got such a superstructure system designed around food delivery that it arrives so easily and so cheaply and on time and everything that we've found it much less efficient to spend the time to bottle foods that we would harvest ourselves. We have a garden in our backyard. We harvest the stuff in the fall and, and throughout the summer, depending on how many you know turns we get. But you know, if we don't use it, it largely goes in the trash. And I'm I'm not proud of that. You know, I mean, there's a better way to do it. But because food is so cheap and available to us, it's not efficient. And so that's something we need to change. We need to change our mindset about that, become more contemplative about it. Yeah. By the way, if anybody's thinking, what could I possibly do to change these huge economic forces? That's not what this conversation is about. Then again, it is because it starts with the man in the mirror always, right? You just do what you can do. Choose the right, let the consequence follow. If everybody does it, it does make a difference. Even if everybody does a little bit, you know, it makes a big difference in the end. You know, you reminded me too, Riley, there's something in what you said about efficiency that reminded me of our conversation with Catherine Knight Suntag a couple of episodes ago. That's a great conversation, right? Where we dealt with this 
because this idea of efficiency and valuing that, not that efficiency is bad, as you've said, but valuing it above other values. That's masculine. Is a very masculine way of doing things, right? And that's not the only way to do things. And, and I think we have ourselves in a little bit of a crisis. We hear about economic crises. We hear about environmental crises. There are all kinds of crises. But I think all these crises are somehow related. They're part of the modern world. They're part of being modern people. We're making changes and we're making progress and change isn't necessarily progress, right? Progress implacably demands change. I once read this on a poster in an airport, but not all change is progress. Yeah, you bring up this this idea of the impact of the one when combined with other ones. I think that's the crux of, of that phrase, act locally, think globally. Yes. If you just do your part, lift where you stand, so to speak, to, to pull from a conference talk quote, if we lift where we stand, it does make an impact if enough people do that. But the only person you're responsible for is you. Just do you. If you can do you, it does make an impact. And hopefully this conversation gets across again the idea from Thich Nhat Hanh, eating contemplatively isn't just about eating. It's just one of the things that Thich Nhat Hanh did contemplatively that add up to a life that's more meaningful, that's more mindful. And more grateful. And more grateful, yes, exactly. That impacts me. Whether it impacts the globe or not, it impacts me, but of course it impacts the globe. It impacts how I live, how I feel, how I treat others, et cetera, right? It ripples outward in these, what we call hierarchies circles, right? Which relate again to Confucius. We've talked about this before, right? That there's what you do in yourself and your family and your community. And we're, sometimes we're thinking too big where we want to make environmental policies for the globe or for the, you know, for the whole planet or for our country. Just think locally, think about yourself. That's where to start, right? So let's shift the conversation to the next category. And that would be what we consume in terms of media. And if you actually think about it in relative terms to the environment, it actually makes sense that way. Consider your body, your soul, your spirit as the environment or the ecology in which you're participating. And you consume media that has an influence on that bodily ecosystem, that spiritual ecosystem. I like that. And when you do that, it's a very parallel conversation, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I hadn't thought of that. Taking care of your body is like taking care of the soil. Right. Well, dust thou art. And your mind too, right? Let's not forget our minds. Yeah. So I'll give an example of this. I heard a Facebook post. It was seven years ago. It said, in the time you spend on Facebook, you could read 200 books a year. I thought, really? I don't know if that's true, but I could read some books. And I'd already felt like I'm just wasting my time here. You know, maybe it would be more productive or more, not just productive, right? But maybe it would better feed my soul to read good books than to scroll on Facebook. And so I quit Facebook and I read a thousand books over the last seven years. You know, I worked my way up to that promise 200. And sure enough, I actually can read a book every day now. That's possible. And that's not necessarily the choice, right? Again, none of these are. Ask yourself the question, what can I do that's going to best serve me? And this sounds selfish the way I put it, right? But everybody wins. Think about what's best for you. Ask yourself, what is the one thing I can do that would make a difference in my life and in my family and in my community? And you'll come up with an answer. That answer comes from your soul. Just listen. Ask the question, pause, and listen. I'm struck by this comparison 
And there's, there's actually an etymological root that makes the comparison maybe even more apt, and that is that human, the word, is derived from this idea that humans are from the dust, but not actually the dust, right? Humus, living soil. Yeah, it's soil. So if we consider ourselves as soil, what would the best way to nourish our soil be? And we talked a little bit about food consumption. That's one aspect. But now that we've shifted into media consumption, how could you nourish your soil with media? And what impact does that have overall? Not just mentally, intellectually, but maybe physically. There's got to be a physical reaction as well when we nourish our soil with chemicals that don't actually provide any nourishment. I mean, maybe we're just dumping fertilizer in that kicks out a bad product. Or even images or ideas, right? Anything we consume. Yeah, I think it's all part of it. And just like a gut biome is made healthier through variety, maybe our minds are nourished by that same kind of variety. Maybe the soil of our mind also needs that that sort of variety. And so you think about artistic works and poetry and visual arts, the structural arts, maybe nourishing our, our minds, the soil of our minds with all those different expressions really improves our, our mind biome. Yeah, you know, it occurs to me there's, there's a difference too between entertainment and leisure, right? So leisure is thought of as synonymous with entertainment. I would say part of leisure is entertainment. But another part of leisure is friendship, writing letters, service, exercise, so many things, right? Well, I think you can parse out a difference between leisure, which is being acted upon for the most part, and active participation or just an active lifestyle. And that's, that's more participatory and, and sort of, well, it's acting as an agent. Yeah. When we engage our mind in an activity, engage our body in an activity, I think there's a greater reward than just letting something happen to us. Yeah. I think there's a place for both, but I do think that when you talk about the difference between leisure and activity, I would kind of parse out a difference there between leisure and activity. Leisure tends to be something that takes our mind off of our life. It distracts us from the things around us. It just sort of like takes us into another world. I think of sitting on a couch and watching a movie. I'd call that entertainment. When I say leisure, what I mean is you're not working. We have to work. Yeah, That's part of our life. The, the part of our life that isn't work is leisure. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to be passive, as you say? And, and you make apt comparisons, right, between passivity and activity. But I think of leisure as including active things like, again, friendship, letter writing, service, education, even continuing our education as adults, right? Adult continuing education. All of that is part of leisure. It's part of what we do when we're not working. But what's happened is more and more Leisure becomes only entertainment. Mm -hmm. It's either watching TV or movies or scrolling on Facebook, right? It's just, what can I do, as you said, to distract myself? And that's not regenerative. It's not restorative. The irony of just sitting and doing nothing in silence is that it's much more restorative than scrolling through a feed. Yes, exactly. It's almost like the power of sleep. Sleep is healing. Sleep regenerates the body. It's a, it's a time when we're doing almost nothing. There's no active involvement, yet that's much more regenerative than not sleeping. You need that. Now we're back to the productivity and efficiency conversation. We are actually giving up sleep in the name of productivity. And not only does giving up sleep in the name of productivity not work, 
because it actually makes you less productive, believe it or not, but it's harmful, right? It's harmful to ourselves to give up sleep in the name of anything. So given the choice between a leisure activity that doesn't really nourish our soil, okay? You talked about scrolling through a feed or something like that. I think that I would consider that one of those activities. Given the choice between that and sitting in silence, the better of the two would be sitting in silence. Yeah, just meditating. It's not as if nothing is happening in that space of time. There's stuff happening in that space and it's healing and regenerative. By the way, when you sit in silence, if you're not used to doing it, even if you are used to doing it, even as a, as a meditator, all these thoughts pop up. Thoughts that have been covered up, right? They've been covered over by the Facebook feed or whatever, the, the TV, you know, distractions. You're not facing your own thoughts, your own fears, your own hopes, your own dreams. You're not really thinking about those. So just taking time to just quietly contemplate. You know, meditation sounds intimidating to someone who doesn't do it. I know that because I've been there. And yet all we're talking about doing is just sitting quietly and thinking. You know, when it comes to actually meditating, it goes maybe a step further in focusing rather than on our thoughts, on our breath, so that we can, in a sense, get out of our thoughts. Now, of course, thoughts come up. You don't beat yourself up. You just notice it and go back to your breath. But one of the things that I notice is how busy my mind is and how restful it is to meditate. It's some say more restful than sleep. It's restful in different ways, right? One rests the body, one rests the mind. Meditation is rest for the mind. Well, and I would say there's a way that you can, you know, we, we largely tend to frame the masculine in somewhat negative terms in a conversation like this, because we're talking about the masculine efficiency, the aspect of, of efficiency and living in an efficient culture. But we can actually employ efficiency to make us better consumers and nourish that mental soil. So let's say instead of aimlessly hitting the feed of social media, what if we had scheduled time every single day to meditate? So if you want to be efficient about how you employ your time, go ahead and schedule 10, 15, 20 minutes a day at a certain time that otherwise would normally be used watching a TV show or scrolling through the feed. Just schedule that time for 20 minutes of active participatory silence and meditation. Maybe that's one way to combine somewhat the masculine and feminine characteristics. Yeah, you can even schedule your time in social media. So we're, we're trying to say nothing is categorically bad or wrong, right? So maybe social media adds value to your life. If it does, then the question is, are you going there intentionally in terms of what you're looking at, what you're pausing on and reading, how much time you're spending on it, right? Or are you going up against, by the way, you are, I'm just telling you, you're going up against the best psychologist money can buy to get you to do something other than what you intended to do. Particularly leaving at a certain time. Right, yeah. Everything in the algorithm is designed to keep you scrolling. So I'm an extremist. I chose to just let it go completely, to walk away from it. And you know, I'm back now with Latter-day Peace Studies. I got a lot of pressure from the team to be on social media. I, I, I mostly lurk. I don't spend very much time at it. And you know, somebody tags me if there's something related to what we're doing because we're promoting peace. This is what we're doing, right? This is Latter-day Peace Studies. We're promoting peace. And this podcast is meant to promote peace. Our Come Follow Me podcast is meant to promote peace. So if someone's interacting with what I've produced, by the way, this is, notice that there's a participation in social media that's productive not consumptive, right? That's possible. So we're producing, we're sharing, 
And when someone consumes and, and shares back, then of course we're going to acknowledge that. I'm going to respond, right? No, I like that. I mean, I, I use social media. I've used it for a long time. I found community there with like-minded individuals. I don't spend any time on random feeds. I, I mostly go to groups like Latter-day Peace Studies and some other groups that I've found a sense of community in. Yeah, it can be beneficial for sure. I try not to spend too much time there and you know get what I can get out of it in the moment. But yeah, good points, good points. My understanding, Riley, is that you created a group I know you've invited me. Yeah. I've lurked, you know, Lectio Divina. Phil McLemore, who we've had on the podcast, also has a group. Is that a public group? No, they're both private groups, but pretty much anyone can join if you just ask to join. So mine is called LDS Lectio Divina, and Phil's is called Inner Path, and it's a meditation group based on Christian and, and Vedic traditions. Okay, so they're not public, but anyone can join. That's what I meant. Pretty much. Yeah. You can ask, and you'll pretty much be let in. Keeping on with this conversation about media a little bit, let's let's talk about some of the the harmful sides of the media that we consume, what it can do to us, maybe even at a physiological level. So there's a lot of talk in the last probably, let's say, decade about the porn industry and what that does to a lot of people and how that has completely reshaped modern relationships and in some sense replaced or served as a schoolmaster for how relationships should be, and that's a faulty ideal. I say should be with tongue in cheek, firmly planted. But that's where people are getting educated about how relationships, particularly intimate relationships, should work and how damaging has that been. Yeah, porn's nothing like real life, right? And and the problem is for those who don't have a real life experience until after they have a porn experience, is they bring what they think is a real life experience because they don't know better into their real life experience from this fantasy world. And it's harmful. It's harmful to them. It's harmful to their partner. It's not helpful in creating intimacy. It's more what? Animalistic, right? Detached and... Objectifying. Objectifying, yes. Yeah, it's turned relationships into, instead of relating to a person one-to-one at the soul level, now it's pure subject and object. Yeah. It's what can, what can this person do to fulfill some unmet desire that I have. They're just an object. Yeah, and that reflects greater trends in society. We've mentioned here, right? All of these things are related. Everything touches everything, which is why, again, this is an invitation. If you didn't like what Riley said about porn or what Christopher said about social media or whatever, just take a minute, pause, reflect, ask yourself, is what I'm consuming leading me where I want to go? Another aspect of this same conversation would be violence in media. What does that do to the brain in terms of rewiring? What does it what does it cause you to desire? Do we at that point start to seek out conflict because we want to act out this again, it's another fantasy world, right? Or at least we welcome it as because we recognize it when it shows up and then we quote unquote know what to do because we've seen the model just like with porn, right? So we can do what we saw, something like that. So, you know, I've had one of our listeners reach out to me to point out a show where there are no good guys and bad guys. Don't fool yourself. Oh, well, they're, they're the bad guys. We're the good guys. That's always the story with violence, right? You have to otherize people before you can act violently against them without some kind of cognitive dissonance because they're fellow human beings, right? And so we tell ourselves, this is okay, right? There, there's violence, but it's the good guys acting against the bad guys. And in the end, the good guys win. No, I don't buy it. It's violence, period. It's humans being violent against other humans. 
and to pretend that somehow the other is less than human is folly. When I read fiction, my favorite kind of fiction is when the good and evil is so mixed up that you kind of lose track of who's good and who's evil because they're both employing the same tactics. And it's simply the writer or narrator's influence upon you that causes you to think one party or another is good or evil, when in reality, they're most times using the same tactics. Good character development is when it's very squishy like that for me. Like one of the most popular shows right now is Yellowstone. Well, the good guys in Yellowstone, they're not that good. They kill people. They employ strongman tactics all the time in the name of defending what's theirs. Well, someone on the opposite side of the, of the character spectrum is kind of doing the same thing, but we've been told they're the bad guys. The same could be said for, you know, the very popular shows Breaking Bad and any other number of shows that have real good character development and a lot of critical acclaim are ones where the, the ethical boundaries are constantly being crossed. And what that calls to mind is that it's more about the tactics yeah. that we've become accustomed to as humans. Before you got into TV shows I don't know anything about, I was thinking, yeah, they have a name for that. It's called literature, right? Fiction, generally, you know, when it's not literature, how do you distinguish between just fiction and literature? Literature is character-driven. Fiction is just plot-driven, right? So when it comes to good character development, things aren't black and white. Right? So there's that too. That's back to the conversation of there's nuance, right? It's really not having these sort of black and white rules, but actually being in the moment, being present, following the spirit, as we say, right? Letting the Holy Ghost testify of what's true and what's right and what's wrong, you know, listening to your conscience. But all of this takes contemplation, right? It takes actually engaging at the level of I'm thinking about this rather than just I'm going to take in whatever plot devices or narrative devices are coming at me to tell me what's what. Great literature. It's complicated. I always go to the example of Les Mis, right? I'm reading that right now. Yeah, you've got a guy who's starving and he steals to eat. Well, there's something wrong at the level of society if that has to happen, maybe, right? That's possible. You know, in the Islamic tradition, there are hud uh, punishments. People have heard about, you know, cutting off of hands, which doesn't have to be taken literally, by the way. There was a caliph's brother or family member who stole from the treasury and he was sent into exile. Therefore, his hand has been cut off from the treasury, right? And there was no knife employed, no sword, no actual limb severed. It's just that he doesn't have access anymore. But the point is, even for those interpreters who go with severing limbs, they would never do this in a time of famine. These kinds of punishments in Islamic law are suspended in times of famine because you can't fault someone who's starving for stealing a piece of bread. And that's sort of the point of that story of Jean Valjean. Yeah, and even the guy that is mistaken for Jean Valjean and goes to trial, I think, what's his name, Jean, Jean Michel or something like that, I can't remember. But anyway, there's a guy who's mistaken for Jean Valjean that ends up being the reason why Jean Valjean gets revealed as his true self. And the reason why he's brought to trial is he was just caught with a limb full of apples that were on the other side of a property line. And they assumed because he was Jean Valjean that he stole it, even though he wasn't Jean Valjean. <laughs> and yeah, and where are, you know, where does that come from? I don't know. The, the I haven't read the book. I know this story from musicals and films, you know. Yeah. It's on my list. But, you know, what kind of society have we created in the name of whatever we consider progress that causes this? You know, I just recorded last night with Ben on Matthew 5 and Luke 6, and you have in Luke 6 
that Jesus and his disciples were taking grain and eating it. And this isn't their grain. Remember, these guys are wandering around. People following Jesus are literally following him around. And so this is actually allowed in their law. You can't take a sickle to it. At this point, it becomes against the law, right? But you can take with your hands, which means you can take what you need. And then there's the idea of the corners, right, that are left for the needy, right, to be able to eat something. Now, I love that. I've always loved that tradition in ancient Israel and in the Mosaic law to allow for the starving to plant and harvest on the fallow parts of the land or to harvest with your hands as you walk through a field. I love that. I doubt that we've exhausted this conversation, Chris. There's way more to think about in terms of consumption and consumerism and different categories I'm sure we didn't even dive into. What we're trying to do here is, first of all, document our own journey, as we always say in the intro of contemplation and what it's brought to mind for us, but also to inspire others to take a contemplative approach to the way they live their life. And we hope this has done this for you. We hope that you're now motivated to think about the ways in which you consume in what we live in, which is an extremely consumeristic culture and society. Think about the ways we consume and how we can have a better and maybe reduced impact, not only on our environment, but also an improved impact on ourselves, our psyche, our spirit, our soil, the soil of our bodies. And our society. Yeah, the whole thing. So I hope that's helped for you, the listener. If it has, please comment. Please share this episode with someone else. You can find us on all of the podcast providers and of course on our Facebook page, Latter-day Peace Studies, and on Instagram as well. We'd love to hear from you. If you have other ideas for shows, hit us up there. You can hit us on Messenger as well. Chris, anything you want to finish with? Yeah, you know, if you and if you call us out personally on something we're not doing, we'll take it into account. All day. We're not experts. We're not gurus. We're learning. We hope that you've enjoyed this journey of learning with us. You know, we're here to learn from each other and from you. So please do reach out to us. Share your thoughts. I'm reminded of my friend, Joshua Fields Milburn of The Minimalists. You know, those guys get it all the time. Anything they do is ironic because they're minimalists. Just before this recording, I struggled mightily and shared with you, Riley, because I'm not good at this, right? When it comes to being a contemplative, but I'm committed and I'm exploring. And hopefully I'm reminded at least once a week from our podcast, from this time together, I'm a contemplative. For us, this is shadow work, if nothing else. I mean, we're dealing with the parts of ourselves that are lacking and putting them out there for the world to listen to. So take it with a grain of salt for sure. Thanks for doing this with me, Riley. Thank you. And thank our editors and all the team members over at Latter-day Peace Studies. We really appreciate you guys. So thanks for being with us on this journey. And for Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week.